This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about and talking about on Art of Manliness for the past 10 years. We've done it in a few ways. We created 50 different badges based around 50 different skills, hard skills like wilderness survival, self-defense, soft skills like public speaking, social skills, how to be a better husband, better father. We provide weekly challenges that are gonna put you outside of your comfort zone and accountability for your physical fitness and doing a good deed. Go head over to strenuouslife.co, get your email on our waiting list so you can be the first to know when our next Next enrollment opens up for the spring, strenuouslife.co. Check it out, get your email on the waiting list, and you can learn more about what happens or what we do on the Strenuous Life. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Some cultural observers have posited that we're moving from an information economy to a reputation economy. There's so much information to sort through that figuring out which bits to pay attention to has come to increasingly rely on what we think of the person delivering them. We privilege the messenger over the message. But how exactly do we decide which messengers to listen to or not? What draws us to particular messengers and causes us to tune out others? My guest has spent his career researching, lecturing, and writing about the answers to these questions, and he shares his insights in a new book. His name is Steve. Martin, and he's the author of Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. In the first half of our conversation, we unpack why it is that the messenger matters so much and how people can manipulate these factors in unethical ways to peddle messages and influence that may not be credible. We then shift into how you can also leverage these neutral tools in ethical ways to make yourself more persuasive and ensure your ideas get heard. Steve explains that there are two types of persuasive messengers, hard and soft, and walks us through the qualities embodied by each. We discuss the different ways a person can become an effective hard messenger, including competence, dominance, and attractiveness, and what makes a soft messenger persuasive, including warmth, vulnerability, and charisma, the latter of which incorporates a trait you may not have previously associated with being charismatic. So check that out. We end our conversation discussing when you should use a hard versus soft approach as you seek to lead and share your message. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash messengers. Well, Steve Martin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me on, Brett. So you are a co-author of a book called Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. Now, we often think that, I think people typically think that we a message is, if a message is truthful, it's written persuasively, that's enough. But you and your co-author have done a lot of research and highlight a lot of research in the book. That's That's not typically the case. The person delivering the message has a big impact on whether someone believes it or not. So let's start off with this. Let's start off with some examples of true messengers that were ignored because they were given by a not-so-great messenger for that situation. They're they basically like Cassandra from yeah. Greek myths. Indeed, yeah. There are lots of examples of the what we call the Cassandra complex. I thought two would be really interesting to talk about. So the first is a chap called Michael Burry. He was a Stanford-trained MD, and then subsequently left medicine and started his own investment fund. And what was interesting about Michael Burry is he was one of the very first people to recognize the fragile state of the mortgage situation in the US. He was one of the early folks who you know, recognized that there could be a financial disaster in the offing and started to bet against and short subprime mortgages. He even had to invent a product to do it because there was no way that you could short a subprime mortgage at the time. But the challenge that Burry had was that no one really listened to him. You know, he actually was a, a pretty awkward communicator. 
didn't actually have the, you know, the, the Windsor knotted ties and the suits that you'd expect from the Wall Street financiers. And so was largely ridiculed and ignored. Yet the information he had was highly predictive of what was actually going to happen. He made hundreds of millions of dollars. It was just the case that he was the wrong messenger. He had the right content. He had the right well-considered evidence, but no one really was listening to him. It was actually someone else from Deutsche Bank who took Burry's information, presented it largely as his own, and made fortunes himself. So there's one example of what we call this Cassandra complex. But I think, you know, there's an example that's much, much closer to home, Brett, which is ourselves. You know, all of us, I'm sure, have had an experience, maybe at work, you know, where you have an idea or an opinion you want to share with a colleague or, you know, a few people in a meeting, and they look at you in that odd way and they say, no, Brett, no, no, that's not a good idea. I really don't think that we should be doing that. And then a couple of days later, maybe a couple of weeks later, someone else comes along with the exact same idea that we had. And all of a sudden, that idea that we had that was roundly rejected is suddenly being enthusiastically embraced when someone else says it. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these messenger effects. Sometimes it's not enough just to have a a persuasive or a well-evidenced or a truthful appeal or proposal to people. Sometimes it's the person that's delivering the message that matters more. What goes on in our brain? Like, Why does our brain link the message with the messenger? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I think part of the reason is the world that we live in today. It's it's really hard and tough to kind of compute ourselves whether a message and the information that's being conveyed is is worthy of our attention. You know, there's so many things that are vying for our attention, you know, who would make a good president? You know, should we send our kids to this school? What's a good regime and workout for me? These different kind of things. And so a quick way in which we can navigate our way through this information overloaded world is to largely ignore what's being said and rather base our judgments on who is saying it. You know, so if if a friend of ours says, you know, this is a good idea because they're a friend, we kind of assume often wrongly that they have good information and good knowledge that can advise us. So when a messenger communicates a message, that association becomes really interesting. It's also interesting where that phrase, don't shoot the messenger comes from. So it works in both ways. It can work for good and it not so good. You know, sometimes if we have to deliver bad news on behalf of someone, we, we become associated with that bad news as well. So it's kind of one of those quirks of, of our conditioning and, our, uh, and the way in which we take on board information. We link messenger to message, even in times where there is no you know, logical or rational link that should be there. But it's just an easy, quick way to determine what we should pay attention to. And this may, reminded me of the communications expert, the media theorist, Marshall McLuhan, where he said, the medium is the message. Right, like, yeah, the Canadian philosopher guy. Yeah. Right. And I, I think what Joe Marks, uh, my co-author and I, are probably claiming here is that there's probably a contemporary update to that idea of the medium is the message. It, it still is, of course. But we're going to go one stage further and actually say, you know what, Brett? These days, the messenger is the message. You know, every day, the news seems to serve up another headline where someone can say something and just because of who they are, it gets believed or it gets rejected, uh, particularly in this kind of divisive world that we live in now. So yeah, we've updated a, a more contemporary take, I think, on that 1950s, 1960s idea of the medium is the message is this idea that the messenger is 
the message. So you and your co-author, Joe Marks, you argue that there are two broad categories of messengers. There's hard messengers and soft messengers, and we'll get into details about both, but big picture overview of these two categories of messengers. What's a hard messenger like and what's a soft messenger like? Yeah, I think the the way to differentiate between hard and soft is to think about hard messengers are the, the types of communicators that are heard because they are seen to have some sort of status over the audience they're communicating with. Whereas in contrast, the soft messenger has a connectedness with the audience they're communicating with. So the hard messenger seeks to get ahead of their audience, whereas the soft messenger you know, strives to get along with their audience. So that's how we'd kind of uh, differentiate the two. One wants to get ahead, the other wants to get along. All right, so let's talk about hard messengers. And they're, like you said, they're all about status, but there are different ways to show status. And the first one you all talk about is fame and money, socioeconomic status. So can you walk us through some of the experiments that you all found that, that highlight the fact that we're more likely to believe people or trust them if they look rich and famous? Because I think a lot of people hear that like, no, yeah, I don't, that's not important to me. I'm a, I'm a democratic person. That doesn't matter. But you've found research that, that says that's not so. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that we'd like to think that we're not influenced by these on the surface types of signals of fame and fortune and status and position, but we are, you know, they're, they're fundamental to our psychology. You know, one of my favorite examples that we unearthed is a, it's an old one. It's back to the sixties. A couple of California based researchers did this experiment in Palo Alto in Northern California, where they they drove different cars up to junctions, to stop signs, and they, they arranged the timing and the arrival of the of their car at the junction just as the light went to red. So they were first in the stop line. And then when the lights turned green, and at this point, a queue had, or a line of cars had formed behind them, they deliberately didn't pull off. And they had researchers in the backs of the car with stopwatches, Brett, and they were timing how long it took the car behind to honk the horn and say, hey, will you get a move on? But what they did is they drove different cars. And so what they found was that people's likelihood to honk at the car in front was not necessarily a signal of their impatience, but rather a a sign of how prestigious the car they were driving was. So, And what was interesting was you know, when they ask people in advance, they say, you know, would you be more likely to honk a horn at a low status car than say a high status, shiny, polished sedan? You know, people were like, no, in fact, actually, I'm probably more likely to honk at that high status car. But in reality, the exact opposite was true. People were much less likely to honk quickly at a high status car. Whereas if they were being held up by a low status car, they were straight on that horn, you know, get out of my way. Now, that might be a study from like, the 1960s, but it's been replicated, in fact, you know, in countries around the world. Uh, and we find that that kind of seduction of a high status or a fame or rich cue can be incredibly attention-grabbing to us. And once we see that, it can lead us to start to make decisions about you know, the, the validity of what that person's circumstances are, what they're saying, such that we may listen to them more likely, uh, be more likely rather to listen to them in those instances. So there's an example of just how a single you know, the car someone drives uh, communicates a lot about who they are. And and we kind of, you know, take on board that information and make all sorts of various inferences and judgments about them as a result. And I think you did another experiment too, where there was people who were doing a survey and one time they like, they were just wearing like a plain polo shirt, but the next time they wore a polo shirt with like the Lacoste brand alligator. And those guys got more responses. Like people responded to them more just with that alligator. 
Exactly. And in fact, actually, there's there's other studies, you're exactly right about that. There's other studies that actually show even people who really shouldn't have that need to want to associate with status uh, because of their, their income can be seduced by this as well. There was a study where in Bolivia, you know, families living on the breadline, literally a dollar or two a day, were offered the opportunity to use some of their money to buy a, an aftershave, in fact. In fact, in each case, the aftershave was always the same in the same bottle. It's just that some bottles had the Calvin Klein brand insignia on the bottle and others didn't. And and even the poorest families were willing to pay a little bit more to kind of be connected to that status in that instance. And is it just the appearance of fame and money? I mean, can you actually be broke and, and not, you know, not famous? But as long as you look rich and famous, people are going to be more likely to listen to you? Well, I, th- I think it's the case, Brett, that increasingly in this you know, fast-paced, often kind of surface-level type of you know, world that we actually live in, looking and sounding right increasingly seems to be as important as actually being right. And so sometimes this cue of fame leads people in the wrong direction. You know, uh, you know, we found, for example, a couple of years ago in China, there was a situation where a famous pop star announced on WhatsApp to their millions of followers that those people that had the flu shot to protect them against influenza were actually 90% more likely to actually catch the flu. Now that's against all good medical evidence and research, yet the fact that they were famous, they had notoriety, they were heard. And it caused huge problems with the the health officials who were kind of scrambling to contain the impact of this message. So sometimes, you know, the message doesn't necessarily have to have any merit or even have any basis in evidence or truth. If it comes from someone that we see has some form of status and we are alert to that status, we can sometimes find ourselves being you know, essentially being sucked into what they have to say, regardless of the wisdom of what's being said. I'm curious, like, what's going on? Like, why do we give credence to people with money and and fame? Is it is it the idea is like, well, if they're famous and rich, they must be smart or competent, so we're going to listen to that person? Is that what's going on in our brain? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, essentially, I mean, we all have, the, I think, this ideal where we live in a just world, where those people that rise through the ranks, that you know, become the CEO, become the captain of the sports team, become you know, rich, famous, well recognized in society, they must have some skills, some attributes about them that have allowed them to get to that lofty position, and and so it does have an influence over us. I mean, one of the, the classic example I think is when we meet someone for the first time, we're you know, almost invariably, we're likely to inquire what they do. You know, so, hey, nice to meet you, Brett. What is it you do? What we're actually looking for there is some sort of evidence of where do you sit on that social hierarchy compared to me? So it is, you know, (laughs) we live in this, you know, what we claim to be a a more egalitarian society now, but these kind of like status cues, they they still seem to kind of like capture our attention and be important to us. Are, are there instances where fame and money can actually make you less believable? Where people say, "Well, um, yeah, I'm not going to believe you because you've got lots of rich, you've got lots of money and you're you're famous." Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think, yeah, there is some evidence now that suggests that um, when brands and products use you know famous people, celebrities, to endorse their products, that's becoming less effective than perhaps. 10, 20, 30 years ago. But that's not to say that we're still not 
kind of influenced and seduced by the celebrity endorsement. It's just that we're less likely to be persuaded when a celebrity is, you know, overtly eulogizing about a product. But we're still, you know, very much influenced when we see a, a celebrity using a product. So, you know, no surprise that a lot of ads, a lot of the influencer kind of strategies these days aren't celebrities that are saying, use this product because of X, Y, and Z. Instead, what they're doing is they're being photographed, you know, enjoying the product or being associated with it. So they're, they're rather than endorsing the product, they're, they're kind of using the product. So that's where I see that instance where perhaps being rich and famous and celebrity might have less of an effect. So let's talk about uh, another way we gain status, which is competence. So the way you determine competence or the way we think we determine competence is like, well, you look at someone, you look at their actions, are they effective? Do they get things done? But you all highlight research that that's not the only way we determine competence. We can actually, we, well, we try to determine competence just by looking at somebody's face and the way they carry themselves. Yes, competence has a face. It's typically squarer rather than rounder, more mature looking, uh, eyes closer together. Uh, you know, even organizations actually use these signals to position their competence. If you've ever wondered, if you've ever gone into like a, a reception area of a, of a major firm and you see all those clocks you know, up on a wall in the reception area telling the time in different cities around the world. I'm, I'm guessing if you walk into an office in New York, you probably don't need to know what the time is in Shanghai or Sydney or London. You're probably not thinking that. So why do they put the clocks there? And it's a sign of competence. It's actually saying, look, we've got global presence. You know, we work around the world. We have, you know, this worldwide skill. So in the same way as you know, a, a doctor might wear a white coat, a nurse might put a stethoscope around his or her shoulders to convey their expertise. Organizations do it as well. And, you know, in this instance, we're looking for some instrumental value. Is there some transferable knowledge that that person or organization has that will be helpful to me? And if we see those cues, the research shows that in a lot of circumstances and contexts, we'll be more likely to listen to them. Yeah, that idea of the white doctor code, like advertisers understand that. So whenever they do, there's an advertising for medicine or some kind of health product, they'll put an actor who's not a doctor in a white coat and you're oh yeah, I believe this guy because it looks like a doctor. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I've even seen ads where the actor actually says, I'm not a doctor, but <laughs> I still think you should use this product. And the fact that they're wearing the white coat, they have the stethoscope, the pens in their breast pocket. Yeah, all those traps, those those trappings of competence uh, is what we call those. And another thing that people, or we look to determine competence is just confidence. So I think you highlighted research where people in groups, whenever they see someone who's like very confident and outspoken about something, they'll deem that guy, like that guy knows what he's talking about, even though he might not really know what he's talking about. Yeah, that's the classic confidence trick, isn't it? We, And it kind of makes sense in one direction, if you think about it, Brett, because you know, if someone has true competence and expertise, you know, they've studied for many years, they've got years of experience of a particular knowledge of a, of a, of a product or an industry or some sort of science, it's kind of unsurprising that they would communicate confident, confidently about that. Because you know they've earned the right to, but it goes in the other direction as well. You know, so we we can very easily infer someone's competence by how confidently they talk about something, even if actually they know squat <laughs> about the subject. So that's you know, the classic confidence trickster. You know, what's what's being s- seductive in that instance is their their ability to convey some 
confidence, some assuredness of what they're actually saying, even though what they might be talking about is just, you know, complete rot. Well, one thing I've noticed in my own life is that the people who are actually really competent actually aren't very outspoken. And they actually couch their their statements with, and they kind of hedge it a bit. You know, they're like, well, I suppose this, but like the person who doesn't know, like they're suffering from that Dunning-Kruger effect where they just, they don't realize they don't know anything, but they're very confident that they know something. Yeah. I I think that's a really interesting insight because I guess in a way, if you are a true expert, you probably are, you know, pretty aware of the, perhaps that might only be small areas of your knowledge that are missing, or you are uncertain about, you know, particular things. But there's, there's research actually that shows that if someone is seen as an expert and they communicate, you know, a little bit of uncertainty, you know, in response to maybe a question they've asked, or maybe there isn't research to support an answer, they become even more expert in the eyes of the audience. Whereas if you've got an unexpert, uh, you know, or, or, or an inexperienced communicator in that instance that's just basically confident, they're probably less likely to convey their, you know, I'm not really sure about this because, you know, they, they, they're primarily trading on that confidence, that ability to, yes, I know what I'm talking about. So it's, it's kind of the uncertain expert in a lot of contexts seems to be the most compelling and persuasive communicator. And I think it, what it happens is it takes a while for that to shake out. So I think with those studies that we talked about, the person who's really confident in the beginning usually is determined to be the, the expert and the leader. Hmm. Um, but then like after a while, people are asked again, what do you think about this guy? And they're like, oh, that guy's an idiot. Like people re- finally figure out he does actually doesn't know anything and they'll yeah. assign X. So yeah, so that's the trick. So if someone's acting really overly confident when you first meet them, watch out. Pay, doesn't mean you have to disregard them. Maybe pay attention to see if their their actions back up their words. Yeah, I think so. And be alert to other people in the room that have that kind of, you know, they, they might seem quiet. They might seem timid. But actually, what they might be doing is just sitting back and watching what's going on and thinking, actually, this, this person really doesn't know what they're talking about. But I'm just going to let them do their thing. And I'm just going to sit here and see how it unfolds. So sometimes, you know, be alert also to the quiet person in the room who might actually turn out to be the most accomplished and the most established in terms of, you know, what they're talking about. Well, it's quite this practical implication you talked about at the beginning of the, our conversation where, you know, about the idea you have an idea for something at, at your work. You say it, it gets disregarded. Someone else say, says it, people listen to it. I mean, you can be competent at something, but if other people don't know you're competent, then like all your competency is like, it doesn't mean anything. So the trick is like, you have to be able to promote yourself, let people know that you're competent, but you don't want to do it in a way where it's off-putting, right? Or people are just like, that guy's a blowhard. Yeah. So here's the, like, how do you, like, what does the research say and how you can promote yourself and this is becoming more important in our economy where uh, people have to promote themselves. They have to, you're sort of becoming your own, your own agent. How do you promote yourself without turning people off? Exactly. Uh, and, and actually, we've done a study uh, that, that looks at this. And it turns out that if you can arrange for someone else to introduce or talk about your expertise before you make a recommendation or give someone some advice, that same recommendation or advice becomes elevated in terms of its persuasiveness, its appeal. Um, and we actually did this experiment, Brett, with with realtors who would have, you know, customers or potential clients call their office. You know, they're interested in selling their house or maybe renting a property, and you know, a receptionist would answer the phone, 
and they route the call through to the realtor and say, right, well, let me put you through to Brett who can help with your inquiry. And we said, well, look, what would happen if instead of just saying, I'll put you through to the realtor, before you connected the call, you gave that potential client a piece of information, genuine information that conveyed their expertise. So something like, well, look, instead of saying, I'll put you through to Brett, who's our head of sales, you instead said, well, let me put you through to Brett, who's not just our head of sales. He's been doing this job for 15 years. And, you know, he's a, a member of the Realtor Guild of Oklahoma. He's, you know, recently sold out on that big property down on the waterfront. He is probably the best person in our office today to give you some useful information. And they do that just before they put the call through. Suddenly, you don't have to do that anymore. You, you know, if <laughs> when you're talking to a potential client, you know, that, the, the, the last thing you want to be doing is to say, well, before I make a recommendation to you, let me tell you about how wonderful and brilliant and experienced I am, because immediately, as you rightly suggested a few moments ago, that wall goes up between you. But if someone else does it, I think that's a, you know, a really important thing. We, we actually increased the number of valuation appointments by 20%, the number of contracts signed by 15%, just by doing that. It didn't cost any money. And I think there's a lesson here, not just for ourselves, but in terms of you know, increasing our own perceived expertise and competence. But if we're managing people, you know, I think it's a good idea for leaders, supervisors to, you know, when their teams are communicating to others, potential clients, you know, and, and colleagues, to kind of boost their competence by talking about how great they are, the kind of experience they have, the the, the great projects they've actually delivered on. And it, it does seem to me that there's two advantages. Not only do you kind of raise that perceived competence genuinely, but you're giving people kind of aspirations and labels to live up to. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of merit, I think, in working out these small, simple, costless ways to introduce either our own expertise or introduce you know, our colleagues' expertise. Everybody wins in that instance. So yeah, I think that's great. I, th- I love that. So there's two things there. Find someone who can be an advocate for you, but then also just advocate for, advocate for other people. If you know someone who's really competent, let other people know. And then that'll boost your status because people are like, hey, you're sharing so useful information with me. And the other person will probably appreciate that you, you know, you promoted them. Yeah. And we're, what we're finding, Brett, is that's particularly useful. And you know, those situations sometimes when you're at work and you're in a meeting, there's like a dozen people in the room and someone starts the meeting by saying, well, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves, shall we? I mean, it's never a good start for a meeting because no one that's, you know, a reasonably normal human being is going to want to stand up and talk about how brilliant they are in front of a room full of strangers. So invariably, they're just going to like give their their name and their job title. So it doesn't really promote useful exchanges of information. So it's it's a poor start to a meeting in that regard. But it's it's actually a ridiculous start to a meeting anyway, because no one's listening to what people are saying. Because the moment you know it's your turn to speak, you're thinking, oh, geez, what am I about to say about myself? So no one's listening to what's being said anyway. So what we found is is that the optimal way to start a meeting is the most senior person or whoever called the meeting should be responsible for introducing everyone and the reason why they're in the room. And it, it neatly dodges that kind of uncertain, uncomfortable situation of let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. That That's what we're finding is the probably the optimal way to start meetings. So let's talk about another way we gain status and that's dominance. So what are the common ways that we use dominance to gain status? Yeah. So this idea of dominance is, you know, very heavily rooted in the kind of evolutionary type of, of, of conduct. You know, there, there are certain people, and we all know who they are, who just, you know, they, they seem to kind of treat life as a competition and, and their goal is to win 
at all costs. To the victor goes the spoils. And so they they are often, you know, the way they come into the room, they'll they'll kind of expand themselves into the space. They'll, you know, they'll 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 talk loudly. Often they have deeper voices. They project themselves. Essentially what they're trying to do and attempt to do there is to say, look, I am the I'm the dominant one here. You know, I'm the I'm the alpha in, in this instance. And you'd think that you kind of we're over that now. You know, it's it's not like we have fights now to determine, you know, who's the president or who's the CEO. It's not like we days when we used to live in the caves and things. But those kind of cues of dominance are still there. They're, they're, they're still attractive to us, Brett. And, and so often when we see, in certain circumstances, if we see that someone has, you know, a dispositionally dominant personality, we can, under certain circumstances and contexts, be more orientated to what they have to say and, and, and listen to them. And so, you know, you'd think in this kind of modern day society, we wouldn't be relying so much on those things. But, you know, some of the studies actually find that, you know, children as young as 10 months old, so, you know, barely able to speak, are able to recognize cues of dominant characters and, and, and using eye gaze technology. So basically how long they look at a screen, uh, they're able to determine if you show them a little cartoon uh, where one character is more dominant than the other. They, they express surprise if the, if the underdog wins in, 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 in certain conflicts. So it's, it's deeply rooted in all of us. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. It's 2020. Time to start fresh and simplify the way you do business this year with Captera. Captera is the free online resource that millions use monthly to find the best software solution for their business. Search and compare software, get free guides and tools, read tips for your industry, and much more. So going through as a business owner, I've had this problem trying to figure out the best software for a particular business problem you have is really confusing. You do a Google search and these results come up and you're like, well, is this actually going to work? Is it going to solve the thing? So you end up buying it and you find out, well, I just wasted that much money on the software that doesn't even do the thing I want to do. Captera takes that out of the equation, helps your business thrive by making the software buying process as easy and effective as possible and educating how you can get the most out of your software tools and services before and after buying. They got over 1 million reviews from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. You can search more than 700 specific categories of software. You can filter options by features, pricing, and more and compare software side by side. Captera has all the info and data you need in one place. Like I said, I've used this before when I've had find like a solve a problem. I wanted to see if I can do it with software. All I did is do a search on Captera. It's able to read these real software user reviews and find the solution I needed before I wasted money on buying software that I didn't need. Visit captera.com slash manly for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. That's captera.com slash manly. Captera, spelled C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com and it's slash manly. So you can try this out for free. Captera, software selection simplified. Thanks in a large part to their patented ballpark pouch. Saks underwear will change your expectations of what a great pair of underwear should feel like. Ballpark pouch, what it is, these internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place down there. No more sticking, no more chafing. Very comfortable. It's underwear design with our anatomy in mind. The fabric they use on their underwear at Saks, it's super soft, moisture wicking, lets you breathe down there, can even repel BO. My go-to is a kinetic boxer brief. It's a boxer brief. It's got the ballpark pouch, which comes in really nice during those hot and humid Oklahoma summers when I'm down in the garage gym working out. Very comfortable and the fabric is nice, super cool. And they also got the pair of shorts with the kinetic boxer brief built into the shorts. You got the ballpark pouch built into your athletic short. Here's the thing about Saks underwear. I've had more letters written from AOM podcast listeners saying thank you for introducing me to Saxon underwear it's like the best underwear 
anywhere I've ever had. So don't take just my word for it. There's been a lot of happy customers from AOM podcast listeners. And I've worked with Saxon Underwear on this great limited time deal for you. Right now, you can save 10% and get free shipping on a pair of Saks just by going to my special URL. And that's saxunderwear.com slash AOM. Order a few pairs of Saks now with this great offer. That's saxunderwear.com, S-A-X-X, Saks with two X's, underwear.com slash AOM, and you get 10% off and free shipping on a pair of Saks underwear. One more time, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. And now back to the show. And what are the situations where we have a tendency to look towards dominance to you know establish trust in somebody? Yeah, I think, so one big context is when we're feeling anxious or uncertain, or there's some fear that we have. In, in those circumstances, we are especially inclined to turn towards a dominant type of communicator rather than a softer, more connected one. Because essentially what we're looking for there is some sort of assurance and a way out. And actually, it's, it's, it's been shown actually in, in research. When you look at, for example, the recruitment boards of large organizations, you know, if a company is actually in trouble, if the share price, the stock price isn't performing particularly well, if there are low levels of psychological safety in the organization, if there's kind of a, you know, not a good, clear strategy and goal or direction the organization is working toward, then they're much, much more likely to appoint a, a dominant character to the board. Whereas in contrast, if if that same company is doing well, you know, profits are doing well, there's good psychological safety across the organization, there's a clear strategy, you know, they're much less likely in those instances to appoint a dominant executive or board member, much, much more likely to you know, appoint an emotionally intelligent, connected, warmer CEO or, or, or C-level exec in those instances. And so, and I think there's a lot of dominant, dispositionally dominant communicators out in the world that recognize this. So it's no surprise that, you know, there are certain public figures who will hawk and provoke and spark fear and anxiety in a community, knowing that they're dispositionally dominant profile is perfect in that context. So they're almost creating the fear, knowing that they are then the perfect messenger to kind of come in and say, I'm ready to lead, I'm ready to save the day. So that's the typical context where we would be especially inclined to look towards one of these dominant types of characters. And are there downsides to dominance? So, I mean, I guess in some certain situations, okay, if you are in a situation where you're like your company's against the, you know, it's going down the tubes, country's at war, a dominant leader might come in handy. But are there downsides if there's like too much dominance? Well, there can be. I mean, because of course, dominance comes at a cost. And what it comes, and the cost, of course, is that connectedness, that relationship. And so, you know, in calmer, surer times, you know, when we look to perhaps a, a more favorable, connected, benevolent type of uh, messenger, suddenly that dominant character becomes, you know, irrelevant to us. And so, that that disconnect from their worth that's that's the downside they become pigeonholed as the you know the kind of like the bullying bulldozer and in that instance you know as a result you know there's lots of different inferences we make about that so we're less likely to listen to them in, in calm assure time so that's the, that's the primary I, th- I think downside they they kind of pigeonhole themselves into you know a particular characteristic or situation where they are wanted but of course as a result, they, they make themselves much more irrelevant in a majority of other contexts. Someone who came to mind who was able to balance dominance with connection was Winston Churchill. 
He was able to show that assertive bulldog side, but also project warmth to citizens. Though even he, he was voted out of office after the war because even though he had both traits, he was most suited to being a wartime leader and people wanted to move on from that time. I think there's a real skill and an elegance for you know the the really uh, effective messenger communicator to be able to recognize when their their dominant characteristic is 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 going to be desirable but they also know when to turn it down and and you know you know become more uh, benevolent Come more connected, more warm in that instance, and I think you're right. Churchill did that pretty well. I, I think Lyndon B. Johnson was a, a you know an American president that that also had a similar kind of profile. You know, he was uh, he was you know I, I, I think notorious for giving certain members of, uh, of of the Congress and the House of Representatives what was called the treatment. You know, where he'd literally go right up and put his face directly in front of theirs. You know, such that you could hear. You could hear him breathing. You could feel his breath. But in other instances, he was, you know, an incredibly generous person who would reach out to certain people, want to kind of give first to create those kind of reciprocal exchanges as well. So those communicators that are able to kind of understand the balance of where, you know, it's good to be a, a hard dominant messenger and, and also where it's actually probably going to be a negative impact or, or even actually disruptive to them and, and to be able to balance the two. That's a great place to be if you can do that. Well, so let's talk about the final way we gain status and or can be a hard messenger. That's through attractiveness. So what are the studies that show that someone's attractiveness makes them more believable? Yeah. So I think, so a good one would be, there was a study that was done a few years ago now in Italy where researchers applied on behalf of genuine job applicants for somewhere in the order of about just 11,000 genuine job opportunities. They, they, they sent out resumes to these companies. And what they did is they attached to these resumes in certain circumstances, a, a passport size photograph of the applicant. And, you know, as you can imagine, if you send out that number of, 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 of CVs, you know, about half of the applicants are going to be kind of above average in attractiveness. And, you know, the other half are going to be, you know, below average. And they measured the response rates from those organizations. Who were they wanting to call in for, for an interview? And there was a clear advantage for those that sent in their resumes with an attractive photograph. Now, holding constant the, the capability and the experience of the applicants as well. So it wasn't that they were you know, necessarily more experienced or they had better qualifications or, or more skills. That was largely you know, constant across the, the applicants. It was just a measure of their attractiveness. The unfortunate thing, of course, is for those that were slightly below average in attractiveness, they were much less likely to get called for an interview. And actually, in those circumstances, it was actually more beneficial for them to not put a, a photograph to the applicant application rather in the first place. So there's an example, I think, a really stark example of how, you know, when we're assessing someone, we're thinking, okay, are they competent? Are they good for this job? We're actually outsourcing that decision to something as simple as, do they look attractive? So that was a, a really, you know, kind of eyebrow raising study that we saw a really large scale example of how you know the luck that some people have in terms of their you know they've been just genetically blessed at birth the the, the huge advantage that it can carry in life and so what, what do you do so what are the practical implications what if you are a person who got the short end of the handsome stick are you like doomed to like never be a, a messenger who people listen to or are there things you can do to actually increase your attractiveness well I think there's there are things you can do. I mean, you know, beyond, you know, what has been, you know, 
gifted to us at birth. You know, we can you know can dress differently. We can use kind of cosmetics, makeup, these the, these kind of things. In fact, studies have actually shown that you know food servers that wear red lipstick, for example, get more tips in that instance. So so there are some you know kind of surface things we can actually do. I guess the the important thing though here is is that there are eight of these kind of messenger traits. So just because you feel like you're lacking in one. That doesn't mean that the other seven aren't available for you. You know, it might be that your competence or your uh, your warmth or your your trustworthiness. I know we're going to talk about this these other traits in a few moments. That might be more important for you to signal in that instance. Well, let's move to some of these the, to the warmth, the soft messenger traits, and this is all about connection. So it's not about uh, status, not people looking up to you. It's about you connecting with people. And one trait that people look to for a soft messenger is warmth. So what what do you all mean? How do you define warmth? Well, we define warmth in two ways. So one is, you're right, it's about connectedness. The warm messenger essentially communicates their benevolence with an audience, whether that's an individual that they're talking to or a group or a, you know, a whole room of people. They're essentially saying, I have your interests at heart. I'm not trying to get ahead of you. I'm trying to get along with you. And they do this by demonstrating positivity. They, they do it by seeking out similarities that they may share with their audience. You know, we're, we're, we're the same because we come from the, you know, a similar place or we have similar experiences or we have same set of values. They, they're essentially, Brett, communicating their benevolence and their connectedness with their audience before they deliver a message. And, and that's what we define as the, as the warm messenger in that instance. And they can be incredibly, incredibly persuasive. And you know, the, the studies, for example, that actually show that you know, doctors, for example, that are treating patients that, that use a warm, connected, caring tone of voice are much less likely to get sued if they make a medical error than the, a doctor that gives the exact same advice and counsel in a, in a harder, you know, more kind of technical dominant kind of way. So that just that bedside manner in that instance can mean the difference between getting sued or not. So that's, that's how crucial warmth is, uh, in this context of connecting with others. And the idea of connecting through warmth, I mean, politicians take advantage of this. At least you see this here in the States. I don't know what it's like in the United Kingdom, but like a politician will come to Oklahoma and they'll try to find some connection they have to Oklahoma. It's like, oh, well, my grandfather lived in Oklahoma. And you're like, oh yeah, I love this guy. Even though he's never lived in Oklahoma, he had a grandpa that lived in Oklahoma. I feel connected. Yeah, exactly right. I'm reminded of one of my, actually a professor of mine, a US uh, guy, Robert Cialdini, a retired, globally esteemed social psychologist at Arizona State University. When, when he first joined the university as an assistant professor, he did this fascinating little study where he gave his grad students a kind of synopsis of notorious characters from history, you know, Mussolini and Stalin, and, and, and in particular, Grigory Rasputin, the mad monk of Russia. And, you know, he gave me these profiles and said, well, get into groups and tell us how, you know, likable this guy is, you know, uh, give us an opinion, uh, an evaluation of, you know, what sort of person he was. And of course, you know, you, you read this story about Rasputin and you go, this guy was awful. What a desperately horrible character. But there was always a group of students that for some reason seemed to be a little bit more connected to this guy than everyone else. And, and what 
you know, Cialdini and his colleagues had actually done is they kind of manipulated the information in such a way that certain students found out that they shared the same birthday as a notorious character from the past. And in the same way as you've just described, you know, when a politician comes into Oklahoma and says, oh, you know, my grandmother was from Oklahoma. Oh, I've got that connection. These, these students are going, well, he can't be that bad because he shares the same birthday as me. You know, all the information was the same, but that seemingly irrelevant connection, you know, just softens someone else's notoriety a little such that we think, well, okay, we, maybe we can have an exchange here. It's so important. So another way that people can um, be a soft messenger is through vulnerability. How do you all define that? Yeah. So when we talk about vulnerability, we're talking about, and I think often when we talk about vulnerability, we're talking about, you know, people that perhaps don't have status. They don't, they're not rich. They're not famous. They don't necessarily have competence. All they have essentially is their ability to reach out to others and say, I need help. You know, um, I, 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 I need some sort of assistance here. And and we find that in certain contexts, if we learn that someone has a, a need, our humanity kicks in. We seem connected to them and we want to help them more. So, so often if we have a downside or some weakness or vulnerability, the natural inclination, I think, Brett, is for us to kind of hide that away because we think we don't want to kind of be seen as needy. But in certain circumstances, it can be you know, pretty productive. And in certain circumstances, we've got nothing else to trade on. So we, so we have to do that. And there are actually studies that show that, you know, when people do express a vulnerability, although we'd like to, you know, although we think, you know, I think people aren't going to help me, people are much, much more likely to say yes to a request that we make of them because we, we underestimate the likelihood that they're willing to help. You know, we, when we ask someone for help, we, we start to think about, well, think about all the costs they're going to incur financially or economically if they if they try and help us but as the recipient of a request for help we're much more likely to be thinking of the social costs if we say no to them so oftentimes what happens is you know we underestimate others likelihood to help us and so you know the key takeaway here is actually ask for help more. It's likely to become much, much more forthcoming than we perhaps estimate ourselves. So you mentioned there's certain situations where it, it works well and in certain situations it doesn't. So what are the situa- certain situations where vulnerability is actually a very powerful tool to convey a message and when is it not? Yeah. So I think, so there's a study actually that was a couple of years ago by a guy from Harvard who put some of his researchers into a situation of vulnerability. And the the situation of vulnerability he put them into was in a long line at places where people are queuing up and people are angry and just like, you know, frustrated and impatient. So think airport lines, security queues, railway stations, these kind of things. And what he did was he, he essentially said, okay, I want you to go up to people and ask them whether they'd be willing to let you in front of the line. Would you be able to cut in front of the line? Okay. And I want you to offer them money. Okay. And we want to kind of work out what the optimum amount of money is that we should offer someone in order for them to let you cut in front of the line. And, you know, no surprise to anyone that's studied economy, uh, economics in, in, you know, even at a basic level, the more money that people offered, the more likely that person that was offered the money to say, yeah, sure, you can go, you can go ahead of me. Okay. So here's the surprise. No one ever took the money. And it seems that the money, you know, I'll give you $10, I'll give you $20, I'll give you $50, was a signal of vulnerability. So I think where this idea of vulnerability is most likely to be helpful is in 
specific situations of need that are identifiable to an individual. It's one of the reasons why when you see things like you know charity fundraising campaigns, there might be many hundreds of thousands, even millions of people that are in extreme conditions of need. But a charity would never say, look at all the millions of starving children or look at all the hundreds of thousands of people that have been, you know, have lost their homes because of this, this hurricane or this, you know, typhoon or whatever it may be. They tend to focus on an individual. The identifiable individual context is, is, is where the expression of vulnerability is going to be most helpful. So th- those would be the context, I think, where vulnerability is especially potent is if you can individualize and personalize the need of an individual. I think it was Stalin that said, you know, that the death of one soldier is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. And it sounds like too, uh, vulnerability can be a useful, I don't want to say tool, yeah, it's like a, a, a technique or a tactic to use if you are a dominant or you have status in some way. So we talked about competence. One way you can actually increase your competence even more is show highlighting the fact, well, you don't know everything and you should take a little bit of humility towards uh, yourself and the situation. I think you're right about that. In fact, actually, there's, I think, an immediate practical application here that, you know, so sometimes we're required to present, you know, maybe we're pitching for a, a new account or we're setting an idea and, you know, often our idea or what we're pitching might have some drawbacks. And I think, you know, a common mistake that we often make is to kind of squirrel those drawbacks, those weaknesses in a product or an idea we have kind of, you know, at the back of the the PowerPoint deck, or sometimes we don't even talk about them at all. We think, well, if, if we don't mention them, then no one will know about it. We actually find that's a mistake. In fact, if if we do have, you know, a, a drawback or a weakness about a proposition we have or a presentation we're about to make, and as long as it's not an insurmountable one, the evidence actually shows that you'd be much, much more effective if you position that vulnerability or that weakness as the very first thing you say. You know, look, well, you know, this proposition, it's, it, it's probably a little bit more expensive than you were expecting. But, and then you follow that with, here are all the advantages, here are all the upsides. So, I think you're right, Brett. You know, the, there there is an opportunity, and it can be used ethically and effectively to use some of those vulnerabilities to t- essentially to turn some of the weaknesses that we have into strengths. So, another soft trait is charisma, and a lot of people. I think our idea of charisma it's it's mystical. It's like you either got it or you don't. But does, what does your research say about that? Can 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 charisma be developed by somebody? It can. In fact, actually, it's it's not just our research. In fact, it was it was I think about 2016, so only four years ago, that the the kind of social scientific community coalesced uh, and came to a consensus about what charisma was. Because you know we were all talking about charisma, and when people were saying, "Well, what is it?" You say, "Well, you just know. You know, when you see someone, when you hear them, you know that they have that charismatic quality." But Essentially, what we find is that there are three things that the charismatic messenger has. So the first is they have this ability to orientate their audience towards a common vision or goal. They're not speaking to, you know, 10,000 individuals in an audience. They're speaking to one mind made up of 10,000 people. They're, they're, they're saying, this is the direction we're going. Here's the unifying goal or vision that we actually have. And they're able to con- they that unifying vision first. So they, they have that. The second thing they have is what we psychologists call surgency. So surgency is this kind of 
enthusiasm, this positivity, and, and actually it comes across in nonverbal behavior as well. There have been studies looking at TED Talks, for example, and what they find is that you can have a series of presenters at TED, and they're talking about largely the same situation or subject. So, you know, you may have two presenters that are talking about leadership. They've, you know, they've got good content, they've got good messages to deliver, largely the same. But we find that those presenters that are likely to register more views of their talk use about twice as many hand gestures as their comparable peers who perhaps are less animated. And so injecting that kind of sense of body and, you know, movement matching voice and words seems to be important. So, but, you know, not to the point where you kind of get crazy and you're waving your hands like a madman, but those kind of well-considered hand movements and gestures seem to be important in in that instance. And the third thing that charismatic messengers have is an ability to think quickly and talk in metaphors. We used to think that that was closely associated and aligned to intelligence. We're not so sure now. We, We actually just think that you know, certain charismatic messengers have that ability to turn a phrase, to use a metaphor, to have like a quick thinking retort. And so those three things, that unifying vision, surgency, and, and quick thinkingness is what we've kind of essentially coalesced behind in terms of our definition of what a charismatic communicator is. Well, the, the idea of metaphor was interesting because never, I've never heard that before and I've come across that in the research about charisma. And you talk about uh, World War II leaders. Franklin Roosevelt used lots of metaphors during his fireside chats during World War II. Yeah. In fact, actually, there's I, I know of a couple of researchers that have looked back on speeches given at presidential inaugurations. And they find that presidents that use significantly more metaphors in their first inaugural speech are the ones most likely to serve a second term. So what? So what's the the practical thing? Like, how do you figure out? Like, okay, you're li- people have been listening to this. And say, okay, there's some some situations where where being a hard messenger would be useful. Some situations, a soft messenger. Like, how do you figure that out? Which approach to take? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things that we can think about. So the first is, what is the context of the situation? So you know, if the situation is that there is uncertainty. You know, you have a team that you're working with or community or an organization that's anxious. You know, there's there's a lack of clarity about the direction. In those situations, we do find that the the harder messenger, the messenger that's able to kind of step forward and, and lead, be the not necessarily always dominant, but but has some kind of attractiveness quality or some sort of competence that leads us to kind of almost metaphorically sigh with relief and say, right, okay. I can follow this person. So in those instances, you know, adopting or choosing, I think might also be important here, Brett, because, you know, you don't, we're not saying that you should try to be dominant, you know, if, if dominance isn't part of your makeup and your personality. So, so sometimes, you know, if we come up with an idea or we want to lead a group in a certain direction, you know, one of the things we might need to do is actually say, I may know all the information here. I might be the, the person with the best content, but am I the best messenger to deliver it? So sometimes we might need to kind of assign that duty to another messenger. So if it's uncertainty, if we want to, you know, get some sort of action, move people in a certain direction, the harder type of characteristic typically fares slightly better than the softer one. In such in situations where, you know, we're kind of essentially trying to connect, build longer term goals and relationships, get alignment. And especially when, you know, things are pretty good, you know, you know, 
the economy's doing well, the, you know, we're, we're happy. There is no fear and anxiety. Then those, those softer traits typically are likely to be more useful to you in those instances. But uh, invariably, you know, as you were talking earlier about, you know, we talked about Churchill, we talked about Lyndon B. Johnson, that, that ability to pivot between hard and soft and, and, and build on where you can some of the, the skills. You know, we can train people to be more charismatic. You know, we can be better at conveying our competence. We can certainly build trust with others more. We can learn to be warmer and to kind of, you know, connect through similarities and, and, and demonstrate our benevolence. Those are things that we can all improve upon. And so, you know, having an array uh, is going to be useful. So Steve, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book is called Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. It's available on, uh, you know, all the bookstores in various formats, you know, book, paperback, ebook, Kindle, these kind of things. For listeners that are actually interested and intrigued to understand what type of messenger they are, you know, which of these traits is my preferred trait? We've actually developed, me and Joe and a research team of ours, a short test that you can take. It takes five minutes. It's entirely free. You can go to messengersthebook.com. Dot com. Follow the link to the Take the Test, and in five minutes, you answer six or seven questions, and it will give you an appraisal of what your primary messenger trait is and your secondary one, and it will give you an indication of, you know, if you want to improve on your ability to communicate, be a better, more effective messenger, it gives you some insights about how to do that. That'd be a good place to go, I think. Fantastic. We'll include that in our show notes as well. Well, Steve Martin, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, great to talk to you, Brett. Thanks for the invitation. My guest today was Steve Martin. He's the author of the book, Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, messengersthebook.com, where you can take that quiz that he talked about. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash messengers, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about how to be persuasive, how to communicate. we got articles about that. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you could do so only on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you had done that already. Thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.